Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Or minutes after 2 o'clock, she is back at the controls, Lady B. If the title hadn't already been taken, I would have said Queen B. I'm Tory Ryder. And I am in for Joan Esposito until Joan comes back on the 8th. Also, I will be here for Mr. Eisendrath on Saturday. First, if you were with the show yesterday, we had a fantastic interview. And you can hear all of the shows, by the way, uh, reprised on SoundCloud anytime you want them in podcast form. But uh, there was a little bit of a... Of a Dis, I wouldn't say disagreement, uncertainty around Illinois' two-party recording law. Do you need consent of somebody you are recording? And I had I had recorded someone without their consent confessing to having hit my car. <laughs> and when his insurance company said, you know, uh, he, he says he didn't, I said, I have a recording where he says he did. And they said... That's illegal. And I said, no, it's not. And they believed me because I looked online and, and they, you know, at that time it indicated. However, and I'm not sure when this came into play, I have to admit that I was in error. Illinois is, in fact, a two party recording state. So if you're planning to spy upon your boss in the new year, just know there seems to be, however, and this is the we can both be right. There seems to be a loophole if you're in a public place where you wouldn't have any expectation of privacy, like a park or sidewalk, you might be able to get away with not having consent. How do you feel, by the way, about having somebody allowed? If you lived in many other states, you could just be recorded without your knowledge. At this point in Illinois, usually the way it comes down is your, um, usually the way it comes down is, is when you call a phone number for something and it says this phone will be recorded, usually to improve our customer service, but basically it means you're consenting to being recorded. So good luck to you if you don't consent to being recorded because it's hard enough to get customer help. Anyway, I don't even know what would happen if I said, no, um, you can't record me. I have no idea what would become of that. But if you can bluff your way through it, maybe it'll help. I don't think it would help you if you wanted to record uh, and then use that in court. Once again, though, the lawyers have it. They've got it locked down. They do. So just know that the lawyers... You know, they can, here's the thing about lawyers. They can be right and then there's wiggle room. Or as a friend of mine who is a labor lawyer likes to say, he likes to quote his law professor who was uh, very European. So, when they say no, does it mean no? No, it means maybe. Rule 50B, take a look. <laughs> That's kind of a line we use around our house. Does it mean no? No, it means maybe. Rule 50B, take a look. And that pretty much, I think, is the legal profession in a nutshell. 
Does it mean no? No, it means maybe take a look. Unless, of course, you're being asked to give consent for some physical activity, and then no really does mean no. So I want want to be sure I'm clear about the context here. Coming up in the show today, uh, so many things. We have art. We have culture. We have the civil rights in art. We have somebody I'm really looking forward to meeting telephonically. Uh, We have a gentleman who is the outreach coordinator, and I believe he's one of the founders of a Middle East peace organization called One Voice. And he wrote a beautiful op-ed about five days ago, which appeared on CNN's website. And, and I, my husband called it to my attention, and I read it. And I thought, yes, this is exactly, this is, this is it. So we're going to meet him. Uh, we're going to talk about a, a show that I am so jealous that you get to see it and I don't. It is, uh, it is a show with puppets. And I, and I don't mean the Kukla, Fran, and Ollie show, by the way, which is at the Chicago History Museum, which you also get to see and I do not because I'm here making this great radio for you. Which, if you want to go see the Kukla, Fran, and Ollie show at the Chicago History Museum as an adult or with your kids, I, I will give you permission to do it because it is just so special. Even though it means you would miss this show live and you would have to catch it on the podcast, I will give you special dispensation. Consider yourself consider yourself allowed because, you know, Kukla, Fran, and Ollie, they're just so dear to our hearts. And uh, we will speak with, it's kind of an arts arts focus show today, but I don't know where you put this in the realm of arts. We're also going to spend a little time talking about the naked arts or the naked activities. I don't know if you, if you caught that story. This is twice in two shows. They're, they're getting 100% representation here in uh, Wisconsin. We'll talk a little bit about the lacrosse coach and his wife. Who uh, I don't know. I don't know if they make money for this. It's a side side hustle, maybe side frontal back hustle, making their own adult video content. It's like this has come across the political radar screen so many times lately. How many? How many of these? People in public are going to have to go, you know what? It's my business if there's a nudie tootie video of me doing whatever I do on the Internet. We'll talk about that. That'll be coming up as well. But I wanted to ask you, um, I wanted to ask you about this weird, I consider it weird. That, by the way, that you're hearing in the background, that is the recovering Lady B. She is recovering. And, and because she's recovering, we're very careful for her health. And uh, so I don't know if she's doing a dry January, but I'm guessing she's dry most of the time these days on account of she's recovering. Is that accurate? No booze for yous, right? Yeah. See, this is the thing. I, I myself am, am blessedly not a person with a substance abuse disorder. Although, you know, the kids, they push you close, right? The, the only time that I feel that I, I need a mind-altering substance is, is um, if I have to take a closed MRI. I'll just confess, I cannot do that and drive the car home. I, I need, because I, if you've never had an MRI of your face, it's like a little sneak preview of being in your coffin if you weren't dead. Some people can do it. 
I can't do it. But other than that, mood-altering substances are not really something I, I indulge in a lot, although I can't, and I'm not worried about it. But this is the time of year where there's all this chatter about dry January. People are going to give up drinking for January. And I, I have to say, if it's that big a deal... If you really have to plan and, and, and suffer and rearrange your life and make a big hoop-de-doo out of your dry January, maybe you should just think about uh, skipping it all together for the rest of your life, if it's that big a deal. And I say this as someone who, if you told me I had, like, had to have like a carb-free January, I, I would explode. I would. If you said, okay, you know, you want to make such a big deal about dry January Tory, fine, give up the pasta, the potatoes, the rice. I might be able to do it as long as cheese was also allowed. But, but, but if I couldn't do both of those things, I, I, you would see like that scene where they throw the bucket of water on the Wicked Witch of the West. I'm melting, melting. That's what would happen to me. So, so I realize that I'm there's a tiny like a droplet of hypocrisy here, except that carbs and cheese don't make me drive into light poles or lie to people or stay too late at a, at a, a public house or um, not interact. Well, OK, I don't interact at the dinner table if I'm actively chewing spaghetti. But other than that. All the stuff that booze would make somebody do or not do that would make them have a dry January. If it's that big a deal, why stop at January? Now, so I checked in with a couple of my friends who are recovering drinkers. As one of my girlfriends likes to say, uh, if you offer her a drink, and I believe she's been sober since like the 80s. She would say, still to this day, if you offered her a beer, she'd say, no, thanks. I'm over my lifetime limit. And I checked in with with, uh, another friend of mine who's been, mm, I don't even know, a couple of decades. And and everybody seems to, well, my girlfriend, the one who's over her lifetime limit, I didn't ask her specifically. but But the guy who's been like 20, 25, 30, he's been clean and sober a long time. He just kind of rolls his eyes. Because he's sort of where I am on this, that, that if you have to make a big deal about giving up booze for, for January, um, perhaps you have a bigger problem than just getting through January. So I thought I would ask you about this. If, if you're listening to all of the social media and it's on TV and it's on some other radio stations, what is your take on, on the whole idea of dry January? What do you think it's really about Is it about people not being willing to look at their own lives realistically? Is it some sort of fresh start? Is it a health kick? Am I just so cynical that, I mean, if you, if we really believe that substance use disorder is a real disease and, and you have a problem giving up alcohol for January, That'd be essentially like a diabetic saying, I'm going to take my insulin, you know, in January. (laughs) What, What sense does it make? But I could be wrong. I could be completely wrong. 
So I am now going to officially solicit your thoughts on this because surely you know more than I do because most of the time you do know more than I do. Most of the time, not always. I reserve the right to say I'm right, you're wrong. I was partially right about the two-party recording, so I count that in my plus column. Phone number here, 773-763-WCPT, 773-763-9278. For texting or phoning, what is your take on dry January as a concept in execution? Um, all of the effort people put into, I'm going to make mocktails. I'm going to make things that look like I'm drinking, but I'm not really drinking. But I don't want anybody to know that I'm not really drinking because then if I start drinking, it's so complicated. By the way, the whole idea of a mocktail is weird. And I say this as a kid who used to beg for Shirley Temples. And my parents were like, just call it ginger ale with a cherry in it. We're not having you as a child naming things cocktails and drinking them. Which made sense as a parent now. I I would say, you know, just call it what it is. Just, you know, you fancy it up with a beautiful name. And although, although, to be fair, a lot of other drugs have beautiful names. Mm -hmm. To be fair. So as you can see, I'm kind of in the middle on this one. And I'm not sure. I mean, is this a sneaky way to try and get people to realize that they have some sort of difficulty and get them to seek help? What What is this about? I mean, if this is really just a let's see if we can do it, then I would like to just join all the all the dry January people and say, okay, starting January 1st to February 1st, I will just give up cheese and we'll see how I do. We'll just see. Oh, here come your thoughts. Okay. Uh, We are going straight to your texts. Someone sent me their favorite lawyer joke. (laughs) I'll get to it. I'll get to it. I don't know if I can tell it on the air. And I don't read that fast. I do dry January, but not because I have a problem drinking, but because it has a lot of calories. And it's a good way to knock off a bunch of weight in January. So my answer to that is like, how many calories does it have that by quitting? I mean, how much were you drinking in the first place? Could it be as bad as my cheese problem? I don't know. Because I'm not an expert how many calories are in a are in a drink. I do not know, but it seems like if you had one every day, you could lose some weight. But if you're like having one a week, what is that like a cliff bar? This also. Uh, oh, an, an additional response. And plus, mocktails are much more complex and interesting, much tastier than boring ginger ale. Okay, so now I'm learning from you that this is um, this is uh, this is taking me right to the what would you rather? I would rather if I'm if I'm worried about the calories, I'm going I'm going to have a harder time giving up the cheese and um, and the pasta. That that if I give up the cheese and the pasta, then you and I, mocktail drinker. We'll, we'll be in the same place. But the mocktails have calories. So how are you coming out ahead on that? How? All right. Tattoo is writing to me. Uh, I have a buddy that's been doing this for 30 years. 
Oh, God. All right. Okay. This is, this is going to be a point in my column for sure. I have a buddy that's been doing this for 30 years. The reason, he said, is to just detox his liver. <laughs> uh if your liver is being poisoned by your alcohol content, uh, you know, your liver is there to clean stuff up. That is its job. If your liver is being destroyed by your alcohol consumption, I'm not a doctor, but my guess is that's too much. Uh, and this buddy has been doing this, uh, and he does it from January 1st to February 28th. Oh, two months. That's much, that's much better. <laughs> Just, I'm sorry, but no. No, no, no. You have a... Okay. I No judgment. I'm just not going to judge. Not going to. Matt in Berwyn, welcome. You're on WCPT. Hello, Tori. Hello. Um, enjoying your, your, your short stint on the, on the um, WCPT. Thank you. Um, I, uh, I think part of it is it's marketed towards people who just say that they could, they could quit at any time. Uh-huh. And quit alcohol at any time, and then they're challenged to to do this dry January, and they find out. Well, maybe I'm not actually as quittable as I think I am. <laughs> so this is this is the little push that you need to get into the rehab or the AA or whatever that would be to realize that you might actually have a problem. Okay, got it. Thank you. That's kind of the launch ramp then. More of your calls at 773-763-WCPT. What is the dry January thing about as you as you interpret it? More in a second. Chicago's live, local, and progressive WCPT. Tom Hartman. The Republican Party basically has no purpose, has no moral standing, has no core values, has no interest in actual policy debates. Basically, it's been hollowed out. Donald Trump has hollowed out this party. And all that's left is racism, homophobia, hate, and fear. The Tom Hartman Radio Program, weekdays 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. on WCPT 820, where facts matter. You're listening to WCPT 820, because facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Filling in today for Joan, radio personality and author, Surrey Ryder. Yes, yes, I am all of those things, but I'm also a speculator, and I want to know what you think is behind Dry January, because... From where I sit, it just doesn't quite, doesn't quite make sense. Let's go to Margo in Maryland. Welcome, Margo. You're on WCPT. Hi. Um, I just wanted to say that I I shouldn't speak because I don't have substance abuse disorder myself, but um, I do have disabilities, and I I just know people with that disability, um, and I think that having to be sober for the rest of their lives for a lot of people is just too overwhelming, and they're not going to make any change until they start with short uh, little steps first. So I think this uh, dry January is a baby step, you know, you know, like a stepping stone so, you're, so that you're they can with, get clean. You're with the takeoff ramp idea also. This this is like when you had Hot Wheels yeah. and you would spin them as fast as you could, and then they would boom right off the – that's that's kind of the idea? Um. Yeah. Okay. All right. Got it. Thank you. That's that's two for one the launch other, pad theory. Yes. Can one other 
thing. Uh, since we're talking about art, I just wanted to bring up an artist um, who's local to Maryland. Um, I know this is about Chicago, but her name is Emily Kim. And I will uh, look her up. Thank you. I will look up Emily Kim. You know, I may have to go back to my one other thing rule, which I which I employed strictly when I was in Chicago and Minneapolis and L.A. and San Francisco. We'll talk about the one more thing later. Let's go to Bob, uh, who has another theory about why the dry January thing is happening. Welcome, Bob. You're on WCPT. Yes. uh, Well, I I guess you could say I'm sort of with the off-ramp theory, but look at it another way. As you get older, you tend to accumulate prescriptions that you may be taking forever, and there's from that point on in in your life. And some of those things, if you read the, I guess you'd say the little booklet-like thing that comes with the prescription. It's pretty much a novel at uh, this point. Yes. This, this interacts or this can be a, in, interfered with by alcohol, so the, so it won't perform necessarily the way it should. Huh. I'm thinking of blood pressure medication. I'm thinking of, of uh, I, I have epilepsy, a form of epilepsy, and, uh, and it's phenobarbital. Huh. which interacts with alcohol big time. So I I don't do alcohol. And, and that, that concept, the lifetime limit, yeah, that fits me. <laughs> so, so it, again, the dry January thing, you think it, there, there are people who just figure, oh, come on, they don't really mean this. It's just some more of that literature they put in with your pill. Like, because at this point, as far as I can tell, they put in the entire medic, American Medical Association diagnostic guide with every pill you buy, figuring that is the best CYA they could do. So you're saying, yeah. if I understand you correctly, that by removing alcohol, you will actually figure out what it may or may not be doing in conjunction with your pills. But yes, I think that's it. You would, you would get to experience what the medication is supposed to do without alcohol. Okay, so let me circle yeah. right around back to you and say, assuming your doctor informed you that alcohol would interfere with the performance of your prescription medication and you continued to drink, does this not prove my point that really you have a problem with drinking? I mean, you're taking a pill that says don't drink with this pill and yet somehow that simple piece of... If someone said to me, okay, look, Tori, we know you love cheese. You really love cheese. Cheese is like a food group of its own. But you're now on a drug that if you take cheese, it, you could have a heart attack, a stroke, a drive into a mountain, whatever it is. Be depressed. So don't, you know, so give up the cheese. I would whine and complain, but I would give up the cheese. So if you can't give up the booze, does that not prove my original point that dry January simply is to indicate that you have a problem? I think I think you're right about that, especially if you can detect the difference that when you when you give up the the, the alcohol, and then your doctor says, "What are you doing? You're you know, you're better." Ah, and then you your say, "Yeah, but only numbers are better. only for January. I only want to be better in January. Come February, <laughs> well, I, I want to I, be a mess again." But, but but people people have this. Well, I'll do just a little bit. 
and that'll be okay. Ah, I, I, to just a little bit, but it's also problematic for people who are over their lifetime limit. Thank you so much for calling, yes. Bob. I've loved talking with you. Uh, if you want to join the conversation in a moment, uh, you may or may not have a big opportunity to do it, but there's a gentleman in Chicago, from Chicago, of Chicago, and if, if you want to know what someone can do to make this a better place to live, you're going to love meeting this gentleman. He he is of us and he is about us and he will explain some of the mysteries of your life around Chicago. Truly, I'm not making that up in just a moment. It's Joan Esposito's show. I'm Tory Writer in for Joan on WCPT. This is Chicago's Progressive Talk, 820 AM, WCPT Willow Springs, and online at WCPT820.com, where facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Filling in today for Joan, radio personality and author, Terry Ryder. Ah, sweet. I am all of those things. Except for sweet. I'm not that. Um, and in a moment, as promised, you're going to meet a guy who is changing the, the look of Chicago and the feel of Chicago by so doing. But I'm going to take a moment to explain that I'm going to implement a rule that I have implemented all my life whenever I was full time on any other radio station. It is the rule of one more thing. I realize that this is Jonas Bezito's show, and she does things a little bit differently, perhaps, but I have, and this is for your own protection, and, and I apologize for not having explained this earlier to a prior caller, but my theory is that your best stuff is what you tell me first. And so as a courtesy to you and a kindness to you in order to make you look your best while you're here on the radio with me, the minute you say one more thing, I will hang up on you. Just so you know, it's, it's not a judgment other than a general judgment that you are going to shine first. Okay, so we're all clear on that. And now I want you to meet Darius Dennis. He started, well, I, I'll let him tell you a little more about himself. But he started, he's a product of the Disney Magnet School, the Art Institute. And if you've noticed, for example, the I Am a Man mural off the blue line at I think it's Damon, just before it goes under the tunnel, that's his work. He is bringing portraits of the civil rights movement, um, people of color. He's creating a whole movement to create other uppers, underrepresented group stories on the walls of our city and other cities, too. Welcome, Darius Dennis. Thank you for joining us on WCPT. It's good to have you. Thank you for having me so much. Um, How are you? I am well, and you've you've been busy. T- tell me some of the things that you've been engaged in uh, on the walls of our gorgeous city lately. Um, in the city lately, it's been a really busy year, but um, we've transitioned actually from the pr- the project that you um, that you brought up. Which I, thank you for the praise of that um, body of work. And, you know, we've we've started an organization here in Chicago called Big Wall Sign and Mural, which is an independent sign and mural team um, company that is um, fostering, you know, leadership in the arts around underserved communities, um, underprivileged and, and untold stories and, you know, small businesses as well. So um, we're, we're currently taking a really close look at how to 
um, keep the type of work that, that we enjoy to do professionally um, in the communities, accessible by, you know, just everyday business people um, and try to, you know, steer maybe some of the advertising and commercial industry away from being so hyper corporate. So um, that's what we're doing now in Chicago. And that's, you know, fostered some great relationships with with a lot of different people um, from 19, the 1937 group, who is one of the leading um, cannabis license holders, correct, currently in the city, all the way to NASCAR and, you know, just so many different um, relationships that we have growing at so the moment. Um, how, how does the corporate and the artist uh, allegiance manifest itself on the wall? Do you paint one of these murals and then the underwriting cost is indicated at the bottom or do people have to to scan some kind of QR code to know who brought them this mural? Because I know you guys can't feed your families and do all this for free. Uh, well, you know, we've got we've got a couple a couple different things that I think everyone has seen coming out of me in the production house that I'm working at. Uh-huh. I'm working out of, um, you know, what you've seen from from us, you know, in, in 2020 and a couple of years ago, you saw some very organic uh, crowdfunding. You saw some very organic individual um, private donors um, and things of that type and also community engagement, too. So like the Uptown Chamber of Commerce up at Uptown United. I live in Uptown. I love that, the murals of Uptown. Thanks. I love them. Love them. You Thank you. And there are no, other muralists, too. Who are, There's a whole alley full of murals and it's fabulous. Correct. Yes, yes, yes. Correct. One of one of our projects is, is in that alley, the, the last the last painting of the series that you mentioned is right there on Wilson, um, off of Wilson Station, and the title of it is "I Am Here," and it's a giant black and white um, reproduction of a photograph from the Tottle House sit-in, which was taken by photographer Danny Lyon well, um, in the sixties. I'm so, glad you uh, mentioned ph- photography as a basis for um, apparently uh, quite a bit of your work. This is a, just sort of a technical question, but how do you take something as nuanced as a photograph and translate it into a thing that's 20 feet high how, how does that even work it's a great question and the easy answer is, is it takes a lot of hard work um a little bit of fairy dust a couple rubies and some magic um, <laughs> oh, you're, you're not gonna tell me i'm supposed to you're not gonna tell me are you no you're just not uh okay no no so, no there's there's yeah. it's it's in the it's in the trade of the old school sign painters industry so you know back in the day when the 9094 used to get all the nice michael jordan poach, uh, portraits and yes. the dennis robin portraits of the of the wall dog era if you will of chicago there's a lot of what we do that nods back to that tradition is very respectful of a long legacy of sign painters across america from uh, you know from new york all the way to the pacific northwest so um you know within that trade and tradition we see a lot of what was you know uh, sunset boulevard um in in la and we see a lot of like the hollywood rock and roll boulevard uh, billboard hall of famers yeah, sort of get their but, flowers but, but, early but, but, but wait 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 you know. i lived in la and and not much i mean it gets shaken around a little bit but here in chicago you You've got to contend with it boils, it freezes, the pigeons poop all over it, people whiz all over it. It's not L.A. You've got a much harder life here in Chicago. And I happen to know as somebody who is an inveterate ancient home and buyer and fixer-upper that the cost of a gallon of like even top quality interior paint can set you back a few allowance bucks. So what are you putting? You're correct. What are you putting on these walls that if a pigeon flies over and aims hard, they're still fine. 
Well, I mean, a lot of the productions that we're doing with Big Waller are, are just that. They're big. So, you know, I'm sorry, but a little bit of pigeon poop isn't going to get to you. But, you know, some of the questions you're asking about is, you know, how do you keep it from deteriorating in the sun? Or how do you, you know, keep, you know, if you need to remove graffiti from it, for example. You're not going to tell um, me are, that either, are you? You're just not well, going mean, to tell there, so me. There's so many products. I can't, I can't even lie to you. There's so many products in so many ways. And, you know, at that point, the painters, the scientists at that point, and we're really trying to get back after that in a grassroots sort of way where everyone is starting to, you know, not just look to us for sort of the consultation as you're, you're asking for right now, but store, is not knowing how to price those things and have real business discussions around the hard work that we're doing. Um, I think in a lot of ways, you know, we, ha- we found this opportunity, you know, for, like you, like you said, where does the art meet the craft? If you, if you know, yes. you want to rephrase that yes. question, yes. Um, it, or me- the it, science. it meets it. The art meets or, the or science, the too. There you go. There you go. You know, there's a lot of, you know, we mix our own colors in-house um, in the outdoor industry. You know, wow. we, we uh, use high, high bullets and enamel paints, you know, that um, are able to withstand a lot of the weathering, but, you know, still do need something to mitigate sunlight and UV protection and things like that. So um, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of a lot of history, and that's my easy answer, that, that takes us back to, you know, all of the, the men and women that sort of created the outdoor big big painting craft that, that we are trying to live up to and, and play our role in and, and find our, our, our way with. But um, also there's all types of new products and, and things coming out. Um, and there's a lot of new a lot of new groups like ours. So, you know, whether it's Blase in New York or Different Strokes out of New York um, by Dan Harrington and Robin Alcantara and all these, and, you know, Open Air Murals by a good friend, Ephraim Cabrera. We're all nodding back to these really legacy teams of like the '60s, the '70s, and the '80s. You know, these, you know, there's gentlemen that we painted with over the past few years that um, really do hold a tradition very high in this kind of work, and we're hoping to just you know keep it alive and keep people enjoying hand painted. You know, whether it be signs or murals. Well, let's talk some about that. You, I read a little bit of your backstory. Um, you did mention you wanted to work with groups that are underrepresented and um, underfunded. And you mentioned that your first experience at the Art Institute was because of a special scholarship and that your right. your family dropped you off there every Saturday and Sunday so that you could let your inner art artist experience everything that it wanted to experience. So are you as a group providing sort of mentoring or uh, in what is the word I'm looking for? Apprenticeships for, for young people you who, who want to participate in this and understand that it's art, craft, science, chemistry, all of that. And if so, what does that look like? How does that happen? You know, you're asking a great question. Um, the business is, our business is very young. We're only a year, year and a half young. Um, the the opportunity is there, yes, to to structure ourselves so that we can not just do an apprenticeship program for us as a business, but also look at what it is to bring sign painting or painting or you know um, you know creativity that can pay the bills is what we're starting to see. How do we bring that to like a restorative justice program in the Cook County Correctional Center, or how do we bring that to um, to men and women who are trying to find their way through craft? into employment and career opportunities. Um, and, and, and it's really complicated, right? For one thing, we have to make sure that we're hitting all the notes to make people want us to keep doing this just in, in society by and large. But as, you know, opportunities continue to bloom and blossom and stay relevant, yes, 
You know, we, we're concerned with how, how do we create a program for Chicago where that is real? And it's going to take a lot of different things, but um, it starts to look like, you know, man, help from people in different fields of education that can show us how to structure an institution around something like that. Um, there's only one other example in the United States that I know of, which is L.A. Trade Tech on in the West Coast in L.A. So, you know, we would have to look at something that was still, you know, yes, we're speaking of tradition, but like it would be a newer idea for us to revive a school of painters in that way in our city. And we need it and we do need it. Yeah. So like. We, we have had help of everybody. We have we have had the restorative justice court folks on the air here. They're really I bet that'd be a perfect fit for you. Can I just by way of cheerleading say that whenever I saw those new style of signs that were basically like giant banners unfolded on a wall where there had been a painted ad, it just made me upset. And I'm really glad that you guys are are actually doing the real thing with with paint and color and art uh what are some things that you where where are some places that you drive by and you think that that needs us um and maybe some of the listeners can sort of maybe somebody knows somebody maybe somebody knows that place where would you like to see some art it's funny you ask that because you you know i have a portfolio with just photos of walls probably you you know i'm 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 a nerd that way where there's just so many buildings (laughs) And so many spaces where we look at them and we say, what would it take? But if there's anything that stands out, like, immediately. I have um, one. one. I have one. Is, well, I have one. Yeah, but tell me two, yours. There's two that. Okay. You know what? The, the number one. Yeah. Number one is the Wintrust mural building off the 9094 that used to get painted for the Chicago Bulls in the 90s needs to get painted again. Huh? The mural building. If and you know that building. I do. And has Wintrust, does Wintrust yep. say that maybe they'd like to help out with that? Because I'm a customer. If they, if, they needed, if they needed help, they should call me immediately. All we right. would figure it out so fast. And it would be a spectacle that would bring back an old school era of Chicago for everyone. I think um, we could make that very enjoyable. Um, something that's more realistic, though, is going to be the corner of Fullerton and I believe it's Ashland, Kitty Corner from, yep, Kitty Corner from the, um, the, what is that, from the gas station. There's a wall that faces westbound. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, it, and it's half brown now, and it's been brown for a very long time, but <laughs> it's a residence, and, you know, um, it's it's definitely something that I think is overlooked and the central the, the central uh, bank on the north side that's getting redone. Um, I'm sorry, that's about to get done. There's a call for artists for that, so congratulations in advance to whoever paints that. But are you um, are you seeking that work by any chance? I, I'm I'm not. We're not looking at that one. Uh, we're looking at some other opportunities. There's can a, I, can there's I a huge one call for your, us to get on the hopper? north and west side. Can we got to get on the north and west side of this city. We have to open up some of the properties on the far west side and. And on the deep south side to, to large to larger paintings for for everyone by everyone not just us and I think that's a huge interest um, as well. Tell me some of the things that the neighbors, old and young, have said, especially concerning the the social justice, civil rights mural, and others like, like it. What what are you hearing people say to you as you do the work and when the work is almost done? Because that must be the time where you have a an opportunity to really interact with the community. It, it is. You know, some of the biggest things and biggest responses are, um, from people who maybe didn't know what the moment in time was, where it was a learning experience for them or it was a teaching moment for them for someone else. Um, I think that those have been very empowering and very enriching. Um, us 
I've seen the opportunity to use a painting as a teaching tool and to do that outside of the museum and to do that without as much, you know, uh, necessity for means, you know, to purchase a ticket or what have you to, to interact with it. I think it's been some of the more powerful moments. And then for me, it's going to always be the attention of the small children, you know, the small children who are wild by what we're doing. And we know that they're going to be the next leaders of this because you could see it in their eyes and you could see it sparkling and you know that they're, that they, they're going to be participants too in the future. And that, that makes this all worth it. Um, every day it makes it worth it. I can believe that. Now, another technical question. Do you have to go up on uh, the, one of those lifts to how does how high are you willing to go off the ground before you go ah, too high? I mean, you know, if they call us to, 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 you know, do a nice sign for the the John Hancock to this year's tower tomorrow, we'll do it. I mean, we don't, you know, we, our licenses only take us so far at the moment. Uh, how but high? Yes. OK, how high does your license let you? I didn't even know there was a license for this. Tell me about that. <laughs> tell, tell me um, more. Tell me more. As a, as a suspended scaffold supervisor um, and, and, and four person, that's especially that's operated in the state of New York through this kind of work, uh, you know, our our limits are are, are very nice. Um, I think we can we can go pretty high. I'll put it like that. We can't operate any crane or heavy machinery that would be, um, you know, put us in the masonry category, of course, um, because we're not, in fact, in, in the masonry sect. But we are still. You know, very, very certified under the 30 hour OSHA um, courses and everything to put us, you know, 10 stories, you know, 12 stories. No kidding. So somebody has a building that's 10 or 12 stories high and they want a super giant, amazing mural. You could do that. We could put a painting up for them immediately. And, we, you know, we would work with, of course, some of the local vendors on, you know, renting the equipment if we need to. But we could definitely build and operate and, and organize and run. And our insurances are valid and current. And, That's cool. And, All yeah, right. We're, Hold we're on. Because now I want to ask you in, in a second or two, um, your your dream imagery that you, you still haven't had a chance to paint. And I want to, to ask you a few more questions. So stand by if you would, please. Darius Dennis. Continuing with our conversation in just a moment on the Joan Esposito Show, Tory writer in for Joan on WCPT. Alexa, play WCPT. WCPT from TuneIn. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Filling in today for Joan, radio personality and author, Tory Ryder. Oh, sweet. Just about 10 minutes before 3 o'clock, I am Tori Ryder. In for Joan until the 8th. Joan's on vacation. She comes back the 8th. This is the season when people do that. Um, it's also probably a hard season to be a mural painter, although this year, maybe not so much. Joining us, staying with us, Darius Dennis. Mr. Dennis is a socially conscious muralist who created those amazing, uh, well, he created the I Am a Man. That's the one you would have seen if you uh, ride the blue line. It's right there at Damon huge murals um and he was i was just about to ask him uh mr dennis what are some of your fantasy images that you would you would most like to see up on buildings that you think the city needs um thanks terry it's a great question i think you know something i've explored and, and wanted to really get after um personally is definitely the her- the heritage of native americans and native peoples and indigenous tribes to um, the entire country, wherever in the country, um, I think there's a very beautiful, um, elegant history that has been captured 
that still is super relevant and always will be relevant and needs to be told. And I think that there's a, a, a way to um, very carefully discern how to work with the communities in order to select those images, um, access that history with them, and, and maybe produce some of the most beautiful paintings that we've had in the United States. Um, I think it'll take time and collaboration as always, but I think that's what I really do want to see. That would be lovely. I mean, collaboration, of course, is is always something to strive for. As someone who lived in San Francisco for many, many years, there were a lot of indigenous Latino and also indigenous American murals, especially in the Mission District, which were fabulous. And if you if we could have something like that here, that would that would just be a remarkable accomplishment. Have you begun working with the community yet or is this aspirational at this point? Um, it's a little bit of both. I mean, we've been reaching out to a few different, well, not just in, in Chicago. We've reached out to a, a few different um, artists and organizers who've made some plans to try to make some work like this happen, and it's tough. Um, you know, we've had some opportunities fall through uh, that we really did want to see happen in, in New York, and White Plains, New York. Um, and I think that we have great friends all over the country, but especially in the Pacific Northwest that would like to see some of this work accomplished as well. Um, and, and yeah, again, it's a lot of moving parts. It's permissions from business owners. It's radical thinkers, people who are there to be outside of the box with some of this stuff. Um, even if we can get it funded and we have the, the you know, the team that's, a, that's capable, you know, we still need the permissions or the property um, and vice versa. When we have the property and the team, sometimes we don't have the money. So, you know, it's, it's, um, it's a dance, I think, especially in these very, very um, real, authentic grassroots projects. Um, I think that, you know, we're, we're probably closer than we've ever been because of some success that we've had and, and a little bit of room to prove ourselves in the communities. Um, but, yeah, as soon as we – you'll know as soon as we get the first one. Okay. Well, I'll be watching for that. Tell, tell me, um, just in general, in case somebody with deep pockets and who is an indigenous person is listening, what, what kind of funding gets a mural going? What kind of funding is needed? Is it tens of thousands? Is it hundreds of thousands? What, what is the general ballpark? You know, it, that's a great question. Um, recently, recently, the way we've been operating at Big Wall Sign and Mural is to try to treat every single creative opportunity um, to a very, very intelligible resource for everyone. So what I mean is, is we'll look at what the industry should cost for any painting, and then we'll take a look at how we do serve the community, whether that's through discounting or finding, you know, collaborations with, you know, the paint brands or um, other people to bring the actual cost, the dollar cost down. Well, right. So, so, but, but, you know, just to, just in general, I think it should be more common knowledge. I think that, you know, from a, a studied, trained, confident, certified muralist in, in our city or in our country, um, $50 per square foot, you know, especially if there's heavy equipment, um, especially if there's, you know, the necessity for help or, or a second person. Um, to be there, you know, we start to quickly get into that's that is the most reasonable based baseline, and I think that paintings of this of this type as assets. So I'm saying when they're complete, regardless of what the funder does. Well, you know, I, um, I'm they, glad they're, you, they're, they're, they're I, worth they're they're worth up to a hundred. 
Well, I'm glad that you're so. you're giving some some uh, numbers here because uh, people when they buy commercial real estate or when they build uh, residential real estate they get a price per square foot and imagine being able to spend money for a square foot and get amazing art out of it that that is absolutely that absolutely. is a whole different proposition and and by the way I love that you said out, outside the box because you're not only outside the box you're literally on the side of the box making on it the side a of the box better sure. box so so. <laughs> Good. That's great. Um, I'm trying to think with a with a couple of minutes left. Is there something that you haven't had a chance to say about your art or the city or the way that Big Walls? Uh, wait, it's Big Sign, Big Wall Sign and Mural. That's how people can find you, right? Big Wall Sign and Mural. If they Google that, they come to you. That's correct. Or go to bigwallsigns.com. Okay. Either way. Bigwallsigns.com. That will get you to Darius and his enterprise. So what haven't we asked you that you you want to say? Well, I'm so excited to say that we are now really in the last stages of formalizing our creative space at Subterra Studios, which is in the West Fulton market. And we will be having an assortment of shows and opportunities for people to not only visit our open studio, but see the work of our friends, um, people we've partnered with over the years, um, and some of the other artists that house themselves at our studio. So um, look for Subterra Studios, <laughs> if you can. Um, that's S-U-B-T-E-R-R-A. Um, like the, like under earth. Yeah, I was going to say that that is a real oxymoron there for for an above the ground <laughs> business to pick as a name underground. Like, did you do that on purpose or what? What happened there? Well, I mean, Subterra is a is a large large family of, of different. Um, artists and oh, people. Oh, okay. So it's not just you. It's not just me, but, okay. our, but, but our business is located down here. There's tons of tons of, of creative visual access down here. Okay. Um, please, please keep your eye out for that. We will let us know. Will, will you let us know? Because then we'll let other people know. It's been a real pleasure meeting you, Mr. Dennis. <laughs> I will watch for your you art. Too. And put, put, put that Staples on uh, Clark Street at Wilson on the list. It's just like a solid okay. half Block of gray. It is so awful. So awful. Every okay. time I can't, I like literally ride my bike around a different block so I don't have to, have to look at it. Thank you very much for being with us. It's been it's been a great time and I'll watch for more. WCPT, it's a minute and a half before three o'clock. Joan Esposito's show. I am Tory Writer in for Joan. Live local progressive. The Tom Hartman Radio Program provides all of the intelligence, information, and insight you'll need to win the water cooler wars. Weekdays 11 to 2, right here on WCPT 820, Chicago's Progressive Talk, where facts matter. Chicago's Progressive Talk, WCPT 820, where facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, live, local, and progressive. Filling in today for Joan, radio personality and author, Turi Ryder. It is I, Turi Ryder, and I have implemented, if you've just missed it, uh, I have implemented the one, uh, one more thing rule while I'm here for Joan until the 8th just to make sure that you come off looking your best if you call the show and you give me your best uh, information and then you follow with and one more thing we just make you go away in order in order it's like we want to be the flattering mirror you know in your house you have a flattering mirror 
that that's what we want to be. There's a mirror that you just kind of breeze right by and don't look in. The one that might make your tush look a little different than you imagine it should, or or maybe it shows your eyes in an unfl- We want to be the flattering mirror. So one more thing, then you go away. Um, speaking of things, the more things, the all of the things. If you have not heard, uh, UW lacrosse chancellor joe gow who was denied a pay raise five years ago over inviting a former porn actress to speak on campus see by the way when i first heard this story i thought it was uw lacrosse like it's their lacrosse team coach this is why you have to read things and not just hear them but i'm telling you it's uw lacrosse that's the campus he invited a former porn actress to speak on campus, uh, and they didn't like that very much. So he must not be surprised to find out that the longest tenured chancellor in the universities of Wisconsin system will getting it will get an early retirement because. Uh, he was found to be engaging in, quote, explicit sexual acts with his wife on a popular porn websites. Uh, it is unclear whether the chancellor violated any specific UW system policies. You know, the policies, they always lack a little bit behind what you can do, right? For a long time, the Human Resources Department uh, was maybe not up to speed on harassment and what that looked like. But apparently they're not quite up to speed uh, for their own standards for chancellors. And can I just say, no, I can just say, because this is my show till Joan gets back. I just like to say, what kind of ridiculous thing is it to fire somebody for taking naked porno pictures of himself with, with his wife, no less? I mean, would it, and putting them on a, on an adult only site. Why do you care? This, I have a big file, by the way, in my mind. The file is called, Why Do You Care? Why do you care what he does with his wife on the internet? What difference does it make? Any excuse you could give me would just be an excuse. He's not robbing anybody. He's not assaulting anybody. Presumably these videos that he makes with his wife are consensual. It'd be a different story if she said, you know, he forced me to make these videos and then he put them online so he could make money off me. That would be different. But nobody's saying that. They're just saying, hey, naked pictures of the chancellor online. I don't even know. If, you might even have to pay to see them, which begs the question, of course, who ratted him out and how much did they spend before they figured out who he was? What? What possible objection? It's not a religious school. If the, if this were a you know a religious institution of any faith, that would that would be reasonable for them to say you know this doesn't fall within our moral teaching here, and therefore you can't be a chancellor. You want you want to take naked pictures of yourself doing private things and, and put them up in public. Um, that that doesn't match our our biblical teachings or our Quranic teachings or our whatever kind of teachings. Okay, fair enough. But what possible objection, really? 
I mean, the only objection you could possibly mount to, you should, you know, you got to really watch your language when you cover these stories. Maybe I shouldn't say mount. The, the only objection you could possibly offer is maybe he looks ridiculous and, and you don't want uh, your chancellor, you know, maybe looking ridiculous. But then again, Part of your strength as a leader is being willing to look ridiculous sometimes. We've got leaders who trip on things and trip on their tongues. And nobody thinks that, you know, occasionally looking ridiculous disqualifies you for most jobs. So what could it possibly be? By the way, speaking of ridiculous, I I find most porn ridiculous, just so you know where I'm coming from. I tried when I was first dating the spousal unit. I had read, you know, maybe couples should, maybe we should watch a movie. And we we rented, because in those days you had to rent. That's how long I've been married. We rented a video and we put it in and we just, I just started laughing. I couldn't help myself. And a young person close to me, I will not divulge the relationship of this person close to me. One time I borrowed this person's phone and there it was on the phone as I put it in my hand, a little piece of a video that, is the kind that I tend to find hilarious. And I looked at this person and I said, phone. And he and he said, well, you know, I'm a something something year old boy. And I said, legal, by the way. And I said, okay, well, it's really on you, but I have two things to say. Just, just know that a lot of the women in these things are trafficked and they're not there for fun and they're not really enjoying it. That's the first thing you need to know. Just be aware of that when you support that industry. And the second thing you should probably know if you're going to support that industry is that uh, don't attempt to translate a lot of these activities to real life because these things are filmed for the benefit of men. And if you try and do these things in real life at some point with a real live woman, uh, she may object because for most women, a lot of this stuff is, is not fun. Not saying all of it. I'm just saying a lot of women, a lot of this stuff, not fun. So that's pretty much just so you know where I'm coming from. That is my general take on porn. But I would say of all the porn opportunities, an agreeable couple engaged in, I mean, if they, if they're monogamous, it's, it's the safest of sex you could possibly have. What could the University of Wisconsin's administration possibly find objectionable what an and it, it for the regents to fire him i mean apparently they can do it just any time when quote such action is deemed to be in the best interest of the chancellor's institution and of the uw system how is it in your best interest university of wisconsin to look like a bunch of prudes how is that helpful Seriously. And and now we've had, let's see, we have a candidate for uh, political office in, is it Virginia? I want to say Virginia, who was filmed with her husband making these videos. And she's still running, I believe. I'd have to look that up. But in the last election cycle, she was she was on the ballot and uh, she refused to back down. You should, again, you have to watch your language when you cover these topics. <laughs> she refused to back down and said, this is my private life and people want to pay to see my private life. That's that's none of the public's concern. It doesn't mean I can't do my job. And that's really true. I mean, it's 
if you have any kind of intimate life at all, it doesn't take any longer. Okay, maybe five minutes longer. I don't know. Set up a camera so and to load it up on video if you know what you're doing. So it's not like you're taking a lot of time away from your job if you take an extra five minutes and tack it onto your sex life so you can put it up on a video for whatever your reason may be. Do they not... Is it a paid position? Does anybody know if being a chancellor is a paid position? Oh, again, I have to watch it with, so have to watch it with the language of paid position. Is it a job that is remunerative? Uh, I'm, I'm just tripping over it every way, am I not? Would it bother you if your kid, if you as a paying parent or if you as a paying university student attended a school where one of the chancellors could be observed either for free or for a fee having sexual relations with his or her partner? Would this be would would this make you say, I, I can't go to school here? Seventy two miles up the academic administrative ladder from me, there's some guy and his wife on a video that you can watch. If anything, I would say it gives the impression that the administration is more human and approachable. And I'm not going to say what comes after approachable. I'm just not. I'm just not. I'm just not. So so would it bother you to attend such an institution? 773-763-WCPT. That's 773-763-9278. You can chat uh, on the text with me. You can text me. You can call me. I, I really would like to know. I just got through paying for two young people to attend two universities. And I cannot imagine that I would have altered my plans for them and my contribution based on whether any of the high-level trustees of these universities had a penchant for recording herself or himself with no clothes on, performing intimate acts with their wedded partner on an internet feed. It would not trouble me. I would definitely file it under what difference does it make? Really, what difference does it make? I care more about the way people treat their pets. I care more. I mean, you probably care more about whether they keep your students safe, whether they make sure the faculty are qualified, whether there's a fair grading curriculum, whether the school gives opportunities to people who don't normally get to go to high-level education, whether they're making sure that the subjects they're offering are subjects that are well-presented and and relevant to the field. There's so many things that I would care about that you would probably care about if you sent your kid to university right now. And is it on your list anywhere? I want to make sure that the... I wish to make sure that the chancellors perform with the utmost rectitude. I wish to ensure that no moral structures are violated in any way. What the heck... If you want to send your kid to school where the queen is in charge, get a Rhodes Scholarship. Other than that, who cares? And by the way, these are schools where you could have nude art modeling in a lot of the classes. So is it the naked part? There are classes in... um, 
the, I don't know if they have them at University of Wisconsin, but there are classes in the monetization of sexual exploitation of women, which includes porn. And you can see there are movies that are required for cinema classes that have scenes where this sort of thing is graphically filmed. You're going to ban all those classes, too? Is it just the fact that he's sitting as a chancellor? And they didn't, as far as I know, give him a hearing, or you should pardon the expression of viewing. They just, I don't know, maybe they did. Maybe they all sat around, watched the chancellor and his wife on their computers and went, no, I don't think we can have him here. But but I'd love to know exactly what he did that was the line. Where where was it that he went off the rails as far as the regents were concerned? Was it just being naked? Was it being naked with his wife? Was it being filmed being naked? Was it a particular sex act? Were they engaged in something that they felt was politically incorrect? I mean, what exactly? I, I suppose I could imagine some sort of scene reenactment that would have been uh, politically incorrect, maybe. I mean, maybe as part of foreplay, they were wearing some sort of uh, uh, racist costume or, you know, I, I can imagine like really out there um, scenarios where, where it's objectionable. But just the fact that he and his wife are having sex on a video that's on the Internet, that does not seem to me like a dismissible offense. Your thoughts. 773-763-WCPT. It's Joan Esposito's show. Amy Goodman reports on the news stories rarely covered by the corporate media. Democracy Now! Youth activist Lucky Abang of the Pan-African Climate Justice Alliance demanded rich countries pay poor nations for loss and damage caused by climate disasters, like recent floods in Nigeria that killed more than 600 people while displacing over a million. Democracy Now! Weekday evenings at 11 on WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk. Because facts matter. You're listening to WCPT 820. Joan Esposito. Live, local, and progressive. Filling in today for Joan, radio personality and author, Turi Ryder. You can spell that name with a U, T-U-R-I, Ryder, like the truck. That way, when you want to, um, check me out on social media and send me messages about how porn or Filming of consensual sex is in and of itself uh, um, some sort of violation of a school policy. Uh, you will you will get that to me if you've got my name spelled right. If you're just joining us, uh, the University of Wisconsin Lacrosse Campus has has dismissed Chancellor Gao, Doctor Gao, um, Doctor Joe Gao, because he and his wife had uh, have displayed video of themselves engaging in sexual acts uh, at, at porn websites. And the weird part, well, there's so many weird parts, but the president of the university, Jay Rothman, gave absolutely the most prudish public statement I have read in many a year, and I've read some. This is what he said. Upon my recommendation, the UW Board of Regents today terminated Dr. Joe Gao from his position as Chancellor of UW Lacrosse effective immediately. 
And then after a meeting and a statement, he said, in recent days, we learned of specific conduct by Dr. Gao that has subjected the university to significant reputational harm. His actions were abhorrent. Now, I have not seen these videos, and I don't know what else may be involved, but it's just the two of them. What the heck is so abhorrent about a guy filming himself or a wife filming herself having sex with their legally wedded partner? How is that abhorrent? It kind of makes you wonder about what the president does in his private life, doesn't it? What's abhorrent? We're all taught that this is just part of the natural biology of things. Presumably, the president of the University of Wisconsin was not a biology major. Abhorrent, abhorrent. Absurd. Uh, And then it gets better. The president, President Rothman, said he planned to file a complaint with Betsy Morgan, the interim chancellor at UW-Lacrosse, within minutes of the regent's decision to review Dr. Gao's status as a tenured faculty member. Now they want to get rid of his tenure. An outside law firm will also investigate Gao's conduct. Well, I hope that the outside law firm makes it very clear that the Board of Regents has its... How do I say this without getting in trouble again? Is misdirected. (laughs) They are misdirected. Let's go to Ken in Rogers Park. I will get this mouse to move where I needed to move, so help me, Hannah. Welcome, Ken. You're on WCPT. <laughs> Thanks. I, uh, I hope that that was... Did he actually want to make a point, or was that him having fun? No, he wanted to make a point. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, I don't... I don't... I think that movie is almost before my lifetime. And, and as far as abhorrent behavior, I, murder definitely. If and you, and to my point, if the guy had actually committed a crime, if he had committed some sort of a crime, if he had filmed, if his wife, for example, were underage in Wisconsin, I mean, this is a state that fought to be able to to serve people beer at eighteen. They got all kinds of problems in Wisconsin. The the I think it was the legislature who decided that they would rather cut money than build an already funded, expanded, and world class engineering program at the University of Wisconsin Madison. So so this is a system where uh, there there's been a lot of meddling and poking about, um, interfering with academic excellence at the school, and it, it has always been uh, reputationally stellar, the University of Wisconsin, fr- from its arts programs and uh, to its uh, medical school. And yet, here we go, mucking about. The Board of Regents President Karen Walsh said in a statement that Gao had shown, quote, reckless disregard. The outrage over his behavior is evidenced by the unanimous vote by the UW Board of Regents to terminate him as chancellor. Now, what's evidenced here is that y'all are a bunch of prudes. That's what's evidenced here. Which, I mean, it's kind of like one of these emperor's new clothes, although the opposite, the emperor's no clothes, where somebody has to say, you know, the emperor has no clothes and so what? The emperor and his wife have no clothes and so what? 
That's the problem. So, I don't know. A lot of us sent our kids up to the University of Wisconsin. I did not send mine there, but I certainly know a lot of people. I mean, they have other problems. Um, UW-Whitewater Chancellor, husband is banned from uh, campus at the Whitewater campus um, and stripped of an honorary unpaid position because an investigation concluded he had sexually harassed female employees. Now that, that's where you need to take action. And they did. In December of 2018, uh, Dr. Gao was denied a pay raise, which 10 other chancellors received after inviting a porn star to the UW lacrosse campus as part of an inaugural free speech week. The assistant president at the time, Ray Cross, said Gao had, quote, exercised poor judgment. I don't know if it's free speech. I guess the problem here with free speech week is that it isn't a speaking part. But I've been doing this work for for a long time, this talk radio work. And, and I, although you can't, although you can't see me doing porn right now at the microphone. No, just kidding. Although you can't see uh, the people we invite. But I, I've talked with all kinds of people who work in all kinds of aspects of the industry. And there are many sides to, to this industry. Some are horrible, exploitive, damaging, dangerous. And I will say that there aren't a lot of young women who become porn stars who do it because it was either that or med school. You know, I had a a full ride to medical school, but I decided that instead I wanted to be, that almost never happens. You know, I had to decide between a position as curator of South American art at a major arts institution or porn star. I picked porn star. I picked porn actress. That almost never happens. Usually the road that gets you to porn star is is not the same road that gets you to um, a lot of other jobs. Let's put it that way. Yes, I, I I had it in my head to be a professor of English literature. But somewhere in there, I decided I'd rather be a porn star. It happens sometimes. There's a woman who wrote a book called Whip Smart, who is a professor of writing and, an, and a highly awarded author at, uh, I believe, Sarah Lawrence College. And, and she had a career in the industry, but not on film, but in, in, a, in a, what do you call them? dungeon and she wrote a book about it and hey you know sometimes you do that you can get on fresh air with terry gross and she did but the odds of that happening are slim and the path to getting that kind of a gig is uh is not usually the same one so i'll go with that but a guy and his wife together that's just uh, i believe the new york times now calls that modern love so we'll be watching to see We'll be watching to see. I can't even say how it comes out. I can't say anything. We'll be watching for details. Oh, no, I can't say details as they emerge. I'm just giving up. WCPT, Joan Esposito Show. I'm Tory Ryder in for Joan. This is Chicago's Progressive Talk, 820 AM, WCPT Willow Springs, and online at WCPT820.com, where facts matter.
Joan Esposito. Live, local, and progressive. Filling in today for Joan, radio personality and author, Turi Ryder. Welcome. Welcome to our, our sex positive. I just, I just can't get over the University of Wisconsin suspending that guy for what he did with his wife in public. Not even in public, in private. Well, we'll talk more about later. Speaking of performing arts of a completely different sort, an entirely different nature, I've just learned recently about the activities of a truly impressive organization called the Sarah Siddons Society. It's a lot of S's. If, if you have a lisp, don't join this organization. <laughs> or type it out. Uh, but... They provide scholarships to arts creators all around the city's um, universities, and I was entranced with the fact that they are now starting to fund performances by some of the artists that, that they have supported academically. I saw a show a few weeks ago and asked to meet the president of the society, so uh, here he is, Mr. I don't, he might be doctor or professor. I will ask him. Martin Below, uh, welcome to WCPT. Thank you for joining us. That's my pleasure. That was quite an introduction. Well, I think you deserve it. (laughs) From going on with Madison to something from the 1950s. So quite a a change. Well, first of all, tell me, and maybe I could get a little little louder here if I could, please, Lady B. Um, Is it Professor? Am I getting that right, (laughs) Professor Below? No, it's just Marty Ballow. Okay, we'll call you Marty Ballow. Got it. And um, tell me who Sarah Siddons was and how the society started and what you do. Tell, tell me everything. I love to know everything. All right. Well, uh, the Sarah Siddons Society, for um, those of you who saw the 1950s movie All About Eve, where Eve received um, the... Sarah Siddons Award, which is a fictional uh, society based on a, on an actual um, person of muse from um, uh, from England, and there were a group of theater goers, uh, society types who thought, "My goodness, Chicago needs a Sarah Siddons Society." So, in 1952, they created the Sarah Siddons Society, and had a uh, an award created that is an exact replica of the award that was handed to Eve in the movie, and the very first award went to Helen Hayes. Oh wow! And so it it quickly evolved into a, a more service organization besides giving an annual award, and that included doing scholarships to theater artist students, originally at uh, the uh, Goodman School of Drama at the Art Institute, which eventually folded into DePaul, and later Northwestern was added, Columbia College, Chicago, and Roosevelt University. There are a lot of performers at those schools. Uh, How big is the society? What are the scholarships awarded for is it is it just for women or is it for women and men and how do you decide who merits a scholarship? 
place. Um, we have uh, scholarships. Uh, we fund them, and uh, the society has um, – it's, it's relatively small. We have uh, just over 100 members. Um, we do fundraising through our activities, through – uh, attending uh, theater performances uh, for an, uh, an annual benefit, uh, donation membership dues. The scholarship itself is selected by the universities, and they uh, do it. Each one does it slightly differently than than the other, um, and it, uh, it 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 is all all areas of theater arts, so it includes writing, um, it includes uh, acting, uh, uh, directing all aspects, Um, and it is goes to both men and women. So the, the, um, the scholarship w- is given at each school. It's not like the, the young people have to fight each other. Like Roosevelt gets the scholarship and, and Northwestern does not. It, it goes one to each school? That, that is correct. There is, yes, we do not encourage any fighting among our, our theater. Oh, good. You can leave that to so. me. I'll encourage the fighting. And uh, that's my job. And so you you uh, award these scholarships to every aspect of the theater arts. And who are some of the folks who have passed through your scholarship program? Might we know some of them? Well, yes. Um, our, our, probably our most famous is Brian Darcy James, who um, is, uh, uh, will be opening um, on Broadway uh, coming up uh, this coming season um, in Days of Wine and Roses um, with uh, Kelly O'Hara. Oh, wow. And he's a North, Northwestern grad. Do, do the uh, scholarship awardees then um, reach back and donate for the next generation once they have launched and done great things with their lives? Do they say, you know what, I want to help support the next generation or the next four generations of people I'm going to help too? Or is it still this core of people who are doing all the heavy lifting? Well, it's a mix. Uh, we, uh, we certainly reach out to our past recipients and um, encourage their donation. We also reach out to our, our uh, awardees. Um, we've had, um, a, for example, um, Kate Baldwin, who was a recipient of the award, came back and um, put on a, a concert uh, for us as a, as a fundraiser, you know, just out of the generosity of, of, of for the cause. So, People give back in different ways. Um, we also have an artistic council. It's the Students Artistic Council, and it's made up of, of uh, folks from different aspects of the uh, Chicago theater community, including um, uh, at least one scholarship uh, recipient is is on that uh, council, and they put on complimentary programs for. Uh, emerging theater artists in, in Chicago, both live and, uh, and of course, during the pandemic, um, we were doing them via Zoom. We, our most recent one was live, which inc- was titled um, "Self: The Art of Self-Producing, as many theater artists are looking for other ways to get their work 
performed in on the Chicago stage. So even someone who hadn't been a scholarship recipient but who wants to be active in the theater arts could go to your website and, and see one of these archived seminars, how to produce, how to, how to, whatever. Is that a thing they could correct. do? Exactly correct. Oh, how useful. This is lovely. When the different schools award their scholarships, what are some of the things they tell you they want to see? And I, and I want to ask this especially because I know a lot of uh, you who listen on WCPT are either artists yourselves or have artists in your families. So what do the schools tell you they are looking for when they choose uh, Sarah Siddons' scholarship recipient? Well, they talk about looking for individuals who, um, you know, merit with their, their talent, but also um, show the need to be part in the need, the financial need in order to continue their education. So it's, it's a combination. Um, we also started this year for the very first time uh, a project that I'm very excited about, and that is grants for emerging theater artists. So once somebody is graduated and they're starting their career, obviously there's lots of things that they still need and they need encouragement. They also need some financial assistance. Excuse me. So this year we started um, with 10 grants uh, to emerging theater artists um, who submitted an application and we received uh, 52 um, applications, and then we selected um, 10 recipients. And while it's not a, a large amount of money, it, 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 it was quite moving to see how grateful those emerging artists were or this little bit of a helping hand. Well, I, I believe that as someone who worked in a in a related field when I started out, you know, it was three jobs, and and I know how to live on beans and rice. I, it's right. uh, it's a thing you have to do if you're going to make it in a in a competitive creative industry where they're, you know, everybody would do the job for free if you gave them a chance, and so uh, to get somebody to pay you for do, to, for doing it is is really sometimes what seems like an insurmountable task. So I'm glad you're doing that. Do the people who apply have to be graduates of one of the Saracen schools or can they just be artists here in Chicago? Just artists in Chicago. How cool. So this this year, I, I attended a performance just a few weeks ago and I, I heard, I don't know if you gave the announcement, someone else gave the announcement uh, because I, I didn't catch who the name of the person announcing, uh, but they said that this is new for the Sarah Siddons Society to actually produce um, pieces of theater themselves. So could you talk a little about that? Surely. Um, and yes, that, that was actually me who, who was talking to oh, the audience. Oh, you were charming. Um, I loved you. You were absolutely charming. So thank you for being well, charming. Yes. Go well, ahead. Um, well, uh, what one of our uh, scholarship recipients uh, um, was uh, a 20 from 2016 from uh, Columbia College, um, uh, Amanya uh, Naruva, and she graciously was going to do a um, was part of the panel for the artist self producing, and she reached out and wanted to have a cup of coffee um, 
to, to, to meet with me and, um, and our liaison from Columbia College. So I did that and we had a very nice conversation and Brian Shaw, the liaison, needed to go back to Columbia to teach and she asked if I could still stay and I said, I'd be happy to. And she said, you know, I really want to just to say thank you to somebody at Sarasota who's a natural person for this scholarship in 2016 because it changed my life. And I, I was just, I was just, I just was stopped cold. And she said, well, I would not have been able to get back into the United States from Thailand if I had not received that scholarship. So it indeed changed my life. And so we started talking about what she was working on and just talked about her uh, her one-woman show, um, Norianat Khan, The Forgotten Spy, and how she had done a production of it at the Hollywood uh, Fringe Festival, and she was scheduled to do one in mid-November in New York uh, at Theater Row, and talking about how, you know, she would love to, at some point, do the show in Chicago, and kind of dawned at me, you know, well, how expensive could it be to rent a theater and produce the show? So, uh, wait, you asked the question. So how expensive is it to rent a theater and do this well, show? You know, it, it, it isn't, uh, it isn't uh, unobtainable. I mean, it's, uh, you know, I think we were able to do the entire um, show for about $1,800. Oh, that's very one- modest. I mean, one would imagine yeah. that it, it would be much more. So that's yeah, really something. So- one night, and uh, so and 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 I think as, as you were there, I, it was a uh, it was you know it was an interesting, great experiment on our part. I think that you know she had a story to tell, and her talk back was was quite interesting. And then we had a little um, reception in the lobby with Indian street food, and and for the, our organization, what was great is that it attracted a very new audience for our activities. It was, um, quite frankly, younger, more diverse, um, and it made me feel that we were in the right direction to continuing to find ways to make uh, a 71-year-old organization relevant to today's arts community. Oh, that is that. And she she did speak beautifully and very movingly of, of what a difference this scholarship had made, where she was just about to give it all up. And she I guess she had gone back um, to help with a, a family member, if I recall correctly. And uh, and she thought there was no way for her to get back into the country legally. And then the scholarship came and everything changed for her. So, yes, that was a truly um, I, I think there were some some damp eyes. I think there were some Kleenexes. In, in the audience of people just kind of politely sniffling and, and feeling moved by it. If you could just hold on with us a second, I would like to talk with you about the way forward for this kind of organization, how people might participate. If you could just stick with me, can you do that? Wonderful. That's Martin Ballow. He's the president of the Sarah Siddons Society. I'd never heard of them before. And then I saw one of their shows, one of these hidden creative gems of support for the arts in Chicago. And we'll talk more with him in a moment. It's Joan Esposito's show, WCPT Live Local Progressive. 
Hey Google, play WCPT. Streaming Chicago's progressive talk from TuneIn. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Filling in today for Joan, radio personality and author, Terry Ryder. Where facts matter and where the arts matter and where diversity in the arts matters. And you, if you just joined us, heard the president of the Saracen Society, Mr. Martin Ballow, talk about how they're looking to to seek a younger and more diverse uh, direction for their 71-year-old arts scholarship supportive group. So what does that look like, the Saracen Society, going forward now that you've seen what an audience you can draw with a show like um, The Forgotten Spy that you just put on for a night in the uh, Edgewater neighborhood? What, what do you envision now and how could people participate if they wanted to? Yeah, I think it opened um, a door for us to an area that we hadn't Explored the, the actual producing uh, of a play. And I think under the right set of circumstances, we would be interested in doing that again. Um, it was a particularly meaningful tie-in that it had been a scholarship recipient um, and that the, the, our, our mission of continuing to help emerging artists Beyond graduation, um, it, it, it just fits beautifully. Um, I think that the, the ways to get involved in, in our organization, um, if, if you go to our website, sarasidensociety.org, um, you can uh, see the kind of activities we do. Um, we are uh, we do offer, um, as I mentioned earlier, the um, artistic council programs that um, are always complimentary. Um, the, the 2024 ones have not yet been scheduled, but it will be shortly. And it, it's a great way to get involved and to network um, with other um, emerging artists. Um, we also offer theater outings that always include um, uh, a speaker at the meal uh, preceding the event uh, from the show that we're seeing. And we try to see a, a mix of, you know, large-scale Broadway shows, but also supporting um, neighborhood theaters um, and in addition to those larger houses. Oh, that's pretty cool that you support. I love the neighborhood theaters of Chicago. I'd almost rather go to neighborhood theater, even if it's awful, because you just feel like... You feel like you're nurturing something, and, it, and and also I think sometimes awful is is funnier than mediocre and more fun. That's just me. I mean, every now and then you see a show that is just so truly awful, you just think, well, that that goes on the top five list of awful shows, and it will entertain me in my mind forever. That I actually. Number one, by the way, is a John Guar show I saw at Lincoln Center that was so hilariously awful that I was laughing so hard that I almost fell between the train and the platform. And some three strange men in New York had to lift me up because my thighs were thinner then and place me gently in the car. And and I, I, at the risk of losing a leg or possibly my life, I still think it was worth it to see something so excrebly bad that you don't even notice where you're setting your feet down. So, yeah. 
yeah, I'm all for the, I'm all for the small theaters, and I've seen some horrible performances at some of our big houses too. And there, there is a joy in something that's truly, truly so awful. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, it's like the people who make cult classics out of truly awful movies. Same principle. Um, I, I would do. You, are you one of those people who appreciates truly awful? I don't know. Oh yes, and, and you know we're we have opportunities to to see big shows here that are truly awful because oh, good. of our tryout because of our tryout. You know. Oh yeah, I think the most truly awful show. Wait, I'm going to write it down so you know I didn't cheat. But in the last few years, what was the most truly awful tryout show that you saw here in Chicago? I would say maybe First Wives Club. Oh, I didn't see that one. I would nominate the Sting musical, the one about the shipyard. That, uh, I just thought that was so bad. But First Wives Club, you you nominate that one. Okay, well now, did you see the audience? Did you see the Sting show? Did you see it? No. Oh, 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 oh you're um, you're. Uh, I know now exactly. Um, the pirate, the pirate queen. No, I don't think it was. It didn't. It didn't make it to Broadway. Um, and, but it's uh, nice to know that he can afford to lose millions. I didn't feel too bad for him. I felt like this is good. Some arts people and some technicians and some lighting people and some ticket sales people all had work because nobody could tell Sting, this really sucks. Um, and that's nice. It's nice to know that people can still just throw their money out because they are so famous already that nobody dares speak the truth to them. And that I also find very encouraging. So... Um, I, I neglected to ask you before, uh, and I should have, if people want to apply for one of these scholarships, does the school have to nominate you or can you can you uh, seek out the scholarship and apply for it yourself if you're at one of, of Illinois arts schools? Uh, because each of them do do it slightly differently. I would suggest that if you are in, involved in a data arts program at any of the four um, universities that you, you, you know you reach out to that department to get information on how and on how to apply for okay well that's fair and and by the way I don't know if you do this I've noticed people have been telling me that northeastern Illinois is starting to grow its performing arts department have you heard anything about that I I, I have have not heard um, that but it that's great to hear and I would uh, I, I do think in the near future we would we would very much like to add another school and particularly um, a, a public university and because right now we don't have that represented in our collection of schools where we do scholarships so I think um, you know there's in our area you know we're we're fortunate with you know, UIC has a strong theater and Northern Illinois does um, and so. There, there are certainly options, and and I hope that we'll be able to do that in the near future. Well, that will be lovely because I happen to know, as a parent of some CPS high school graduates, that there are a lot of school, a lot of kids with serious talent going to the public schools, in addition to getting lovely full rides to the private schools in the area. So, thank you for all that you do, and I'm now going to put the Saracen Society. Thank God I don't have a lisp on my radar <laughs> screen, and I will be. Watching for your future activities because it sounds like just one of the things that makes Chicago great, and I'm really glad you're doing it. And I thank you for being willing to talk about it on WCPT today. Thank you, it was my pleasure.
All right, then we will continue that conversation when I see the next show sponsored by the Saracen Society. And by the way, they get extra points for having good food. They did. The lobby had amazingly good food out there. I ate two samosas, two of them. Two minutes before four o'clock, I'm Tori Ryder heading into our last hour. We'll be followed by Patty Vasquez after that. Uh, Chicago's progressive talk station, WCPT. Hey, where's Hal Sparks? I'm not sure where he is now, but I know where you can find him Saturdays at 11. It'll be right here on WCPT 820 for the Hal Sparks radio program, Mega Worldwide. WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk, where facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, live, local, and progressive. Filling in today for Joan, radio personality and author, Turi Ryder. 404, I am Turi Ryder. In for Joan Esposito. Joan comes back the 8th. I will be in the rest of this week, next week, not January 1st. We'll have the best of Joan for you on January 1st, New Year's Day. I will also be in for Edwin Eisendrath on Saturday. So we have opportunities to get together, but this is an opportunity you are going to be really glad you are listening to. Uh, I've been looking and hoping and waiting for someone to address the issues that were set forth in a CNN editorial created, written uh, very thoughtfully by the gentleman you're about to meet. Mr. Ezeldine Masri, he is the outreach coordinator of a nonprofit called One Voice. It is a peace-seeking group, a grassroots movement to amplify the voices of moderate, moderate Palestinians and Israelis who are working towards peace. It was founded on campus in 2015 to counteract student body polarization. That's according to the CNN piece in the Israel-Palestinian conflict. And never, I think, was that voice more needed than it is right now. So I'm really glad and grateful that you could make time for us today, Mr. Mossery. Thank you so much. Thank you for being yeah, with you're us. How, how are you and of how course. is your family, first of all? How, how are you? It's uh, been a very difficult uh, 80 days uh, plus. Uh, things are not normal uh, after what happened on uh, what started on October 7. Uh, I come uh, from a village called Betlehia in the northwest of the Gaza Strip. And uh, the extended family, the Masri family, uh, most of our houses, uh, my house, uh, uh, were destroyed by the Israeli bombing. Uh, many cousins uh, were killed uh, by the Israeli uh, bombing, and most of my family are uh, refugees in southern Gaza. I'm so sorry. I'm I'm glad that you're okay, and and I'm sorry about your losses, both material and, of course, uh, human. There's there's no way to to properly express for either side. I think the pain. I saw a cartoon the other day of a, a cartoon. Sometimes say a lot with one family standing on one side of the road saying we are not Netanyahu, and another family on the other side of the road saying we are not Hamas. So. 
I think I think that's sort of where where we begin uh, on your mission of creating peace. Um, you said something really interesting in your editorial uh, that that uh, absolutism on either side what was anti-productive. I'm paraphrasing here. I think you said uh, moral absolutism from either side is never the answer. So it must grieve you that added on to this layer of 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 atrocity on on both sides uh is is uh the the what is meant to be i think supportive on both sides that from your perspective doesn't really forward the cause of peace for anybody would you would you speak a little bit about that and your family's history and hamas history in gaza and and uh why you titled your editorial in part that hamas does not represent you yes so uh i come from a segment within the Palestinian people uh, that believes that we should end the conflict with the state of Israel through negotiations leading to a two-state solution uh, based on the 1967 uh, borders. Uh, that's the pre-six uh, days uh, war. So we want a Palestinian state in the Gaza Strip, the West Bank, with East Jerusalem as the capital. Uh, we want to make peace with Israel and live uh, uh, in peace and security. Now, Hamas doesn't agree to that uh, vision. Hamas wants to keep on going uh, and fight, you know, claiming that the whole area between the River Jordan and the Mediterranean is uh, Palestine, is Muslim land. Uh, that's where the disagreement between me and many like me, Palestine and Hamas and Jihad Islami. Uh, we don't want our land to be a war zone. We want to be able to build and to raise our kids and to open businesses and go on and live life like other countries. We want an end to the military occupation uh, through negotiations. So that's why I say that Hamas and Jihad Islami doesn't represent me and doesn't represent uh, most of the people in Gaza. Because uh, Hamas uh, paradigm is different than mines and more than 50 percent of the Gaza Strip and uh, Palestinians. For, for yeah. those who don't know, when Israel left Gaza and um, and held elections, you, you speak a little bit about that, how uh, Hamas came to be in power, uh, diluting of the vote for the Fatah, for the Palestinian Authority. Um, could you talk about, I think a lot of people don't, have history perspective on, on how it came to be. And a lot of Americans just assume that um, that the citizens of Gaza support Hamas unreservedly and that um, as a consequence, if you want to support Palestinians and, and a peaceful state solution for them, you need to support Hamas. And as your editorial points out, for all kinds of reasons, that's not accurate. Yeah, of course. So for me, uh, I studied uh, politics here in the States, conflict resolution. I went to Northeastern Illinois University on the north side of Chicago. So I went back with a vision that is peace between Israel and Palestine, and I wanted to work in support of that vision. Therefore, when the election for the presidency became, I believe, in 2005, I supported Fatah and President Mahmoud Abbas because his declared agenda was negotiation, two states, peace, uh, with Israel. So therefore, I went and supported his campaign. And uh, also for the Legislative Council election in 2006, 
I also supported Fatah and the Palestinian Authority against Hamas because Hamas from, from the get-go did not recognize the Oslo Agreement of 1993 that set motion for the peace process and the negotiations for the final status negotiations. Now, so that's where, yes. You, you, you pointed out, and, and this historically is accurate, that one of the reasons Hamas was able to emerge victorious was that uh, Fatah ran more than one candidate. And so that instead of consolidating the vote behind one representative, while more uh, Palestinians in Gaza supported that party, their vote was split and that allowed Hamas to succeed. And you also attributed uh, their victory to the Bush administration not treating them like the terrorist organization they had declared them to be. Could you speak a little bit about those two points you made? Yeah, so in order for Hamas, my perspective on this, in order for Hamas to participate uh, in the election uh, of the Palestinian Authority, then Hamas must have had the, to accept the Palestinian Authority and the also agreement between Israel and the Palestinian Authority of 1993. Hamas never did. Hamas, so it's an outside player with its own agenda that was brought into the House of the Palestinian Authority uh, the parliament, I mean, the elections for the parliament. And that shouldn't have had happened uh, on behalf of the Palestinian president. Also, President Bush, uh, he was so, uh, so like, what, what I'm going to say, optimistic, let's say, wrongfully optimistic, that if he, Hamas participated, if he did not object to Hamas participating in the election and Hamas won somehow, Hamas will enter the golden cage. What does that mean? It means that Hamas will be impressed being part of the governing body of the Palestinian Authority. Hamas is impressed uh, by being accepted on the international arena. So Hamas will recognize Israel. Hamas will be a diplomatic player. But all that was wrong assumptions because Hamas is part of the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, Israel and, yeah, Israel is, made those same assumptions and has just uh, learned a lesson that way as well. I think the, the general consensus in the in a lot of the Western media is that Israel believed that because Hamas wanted people working in Israel and because Hamas continued to to talk in in back channel negotiations uh, with Israel that that they were interested in what you are describing some sort of negotiated peace with two states. Yeah. So it, it wasn't. Just uh, Bush, who was fooled here, it, it was their next door neighbor, Israel, apparently that was also also fooled. Um, so they're they're good at fooling people, Hamas, apparently. Um, but yes. but they have demonstrated. So from where you sit, I, I was interested to see that you labeled Hamas a terrorist organization, and you talked a little bit about how even before this tragic um, war. Uh, the citizens of Gaza suffered at the hands of Hamas. Would you care to talk about that at all? Uh, Hamas is a terrorist organization by definition. Uh, I studied political science, and political, in political science, they teach us in the book that any organization, any person that uses violence against the civilians uh, for political gains, 
or the threat to use of violence for political gains, this is terror. This is terrorism. So Hamas does that. Hamas terrorizes civilians for the sake of political gains. That's why Hamas is a terrorist organization. It's terrorist by definition. So it doesn't matter uh, whether no. you're Palestinian or Israeli, you get the same harsh treatment from Hamas because that's that's just what they do. Hamas will use, will use civilians... Um, you know, for the sake of will inflict pain and suffering on civilians for the sake of its political agenda. Um, uh, terrorism could be done by a state. It's called state terrorism. It could be done by organization. It's called terrorism, you know. But terrorism is a concept that lives there and practiced both by the state and by individuals and by organizations. And Hamas uses terrorism. What? Uh, now, uh, I'm sorry. Go uh, ahead. Yeah. Yes, go ahead. Now, for Hamas, uh, uh, confronting the people of Gaza violently when they rose up, say, want to live. Uh, we want an end to the embargo. We want an end to Hamas rule exclusively over Gaza. They were met by severe uh, violence from uh, Hamas uh, police or uh, militia. So, yes, people in Gaza stood up against Hamas rule, against Hamas taxation, and that happened uh, in 2017. Uh, it happened again in 2022 <laughs> because uh, since Hamas uh, expelled the Palestinian Authority out of Gaza, I believe in the summer of 2007, uh, things have been ugly in Gaza. Uh, let, let's, uh, let me pause you. Let me yeah. pause you there and t- take a, a, a bigger view. It is uh, widely reported that the leaders of Hamas are not are not suffering. Uh, they are elsewhere, and that they are very very wealthy individuals now, thanks to all of the money that has flowed in to presumably support the people of Gaza. It is. Is this um, the understanding of the people who live in Gaza? Are they aware of um, the way that the leadership of Hamas is living outside of the country? Yes, of course. I mean, Gazans uh, are exposed to the Internet and they have access to all these media's outlet. Uh, Gazans uh, got to see how is uh, with the approval of the Israeli government, namely Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, Qatar was able to transfer uh, $30 million in cash in suitcases through Ben Gurion Airport, through Airways Checkpoint, right into Hamas hands in Gaza, has done that Qatar for the past, let's say, 10 years with Israel approval. Uh, Hamas is getting rich in Gaza with all the donations. Uh, Hamas, Michelin's uh, first leaders, top leaders, they don't live in Gaza anymore, including Ismail Haniyeh and Khalid Mithal and Abu Marzouk and all those leaders uh, that were in Gaza now that in Turkey or Qatar or somewhere else, maybe Lebanon. Uh, so, yeah, people in Gaza get to see uh, that, that stuff, yes. Well, you said something very interesting there. They're watching money that Israel allows to be transferred. Do they then, and, and this would never have occurred to me, do they then feel somehow that as part of Israel's uh, program for under Netanyahu, uh, that their program involves supporting Hamas? Is is that the 
concept, if Israel allows the money to be transferred, is the perception in Gaza that Israel is in some way supporting this? No, it's the old uh, teaching, uh, Machiavellian uh, teaching of divide and uh, rule. I see. So, <laughs> so Benjamin Netanyahu, on in, in more than one occasion, he said, "And my time watch, there will be no Palestinian state. And how is that going to happen? I'm going to maintain the division between Hamas and Fatah, between Gaza and the West Bank. And I will continue to support Hamas regime in Gaza so it doesn't fall. And that's why he allowed the money to go in. Well, and I- also he was buying... Uh, Hamas from not uh, making the protest by the borders. So or so he thought. He, or, or so he thought. That's what he thought. Yes. I, yeah, that's what he thought. At the risk yeah. of tipping my hand here, I'm, I'm not a Netanyahu fan. I, I think... I think anyone who listens to to the show knows that I I'm not a Trump fan, and I think Netanyahu is, is a version of of that uh, in the Middle East. And and uh, I want to ask you if you can hang on a few moments, um, what your vision is for a post Netanyahu state. If that's a more optimistic thing, because the consensus is that he won't be around once this is over. And and I want to ask you about um, what you wrote about students on campus. Um, marching in for, for extreme causes and, and why um, you you feel that's not helping you. And I also am going to ask you, in consideration of the fact that you feel that Hamas is taxing the residents about video that's coming out of Hamas confiscating um, uh, human aid work that's coming, supplies and, and medical things and, and the allegation from the Gazan people when it comes out that they're taking care of their own and letting, letting the people suffer. So I want to ask you those three things in, in just a moment if you can hang on. It's tw- 20 minutes after 4 WCPT. I'm Tori for Jim. Get ready, Chicago, to ignite your mind and spark the conversation. Introducing The Lightning Strike, a bold new talk radio show that challenges the status quo and empowers you to think critically. Join host Muhammad Fahim every Sunday morning from 9 a.m. to 10 a.m. on AM 820 WCPT as he dives deep into the most pressing issues of our time. From politics to social justice, environmental issues to technology, no topic is off limits on The Lightning Strike. The Lightning Strike, where ideas collide and minds are electrified. Sunday mornings will never be the same again. This is WCPT 820, where facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Filling in today for Joan, radio personality and author, Terry Ryder. Oh, sweet! 423, one of the busier driving days of the year. I hope you'll take it slow. We're experiencing some wet snow and some rain around the Chicago area. So if you are trying to make it home, just make it home. Faster doesn't matter right now. It, it is uh, slick. So if you if you are experiencing that, just remember everybody wants to see you and they don't really care so much about what time you show up as long as you're safe. That's the goal. Speaking of safety, we are still speaking and fortunate to speak with uh, Isildine uh, Masri. He is the founder, found, why, what's the matter with me today? He is one of the founders of One Voice, a peace-building group seeking a two-state solution between Israel and the Palestinians. And uh, he wrote an op-ed about Hamas not speaking for him and the damage that some of the American movements that seem to be supporting Hamas are actually doing to the cause of peace. 
Mr. Mosry, thank you so much for holding on. Uh, and as I mentioned, I wanted to ask you about what we're seeing just quickly. Are these videos uh, something we would expect of uh, Hamas fighters uh, taking possession of uh, aid that is meant to support the citizens of, of Gaza? The food, the, the medicine, those sorts of things? Well, there are, there are two stories coming out of Gaza in regard to gunmen on top of these uh, humanitarian uh, trucks. Uh, the first one goes that Hamas activists uh, are there to protect uh, these uh, humanitarian uh, uh, cargoes uh, from uh, newly formed uh, armed gangs uh, in Rafah city in the southern of Gaza to protect and then to take these into the United Nations warehouses. That's story number one. Story number two is the Hamas gunmen uh, work with the armed gangs to steal uh, these uh, containers, and then uh, they will emerge, the products where the items emerge in the black market. So, so these are the two stories uh, surfacing from there. Unclear yet which is accurate, and, and perhaps both. So I, I thank you for, for yeah. clearing that up. You also talked about student activity, uh, some of the marches and the signs and the vilifying of um, of both sides by the, each side by the other. Uh, what what would you say to those groups if you had a moment to just look them all in the eyes? What would you be telling them? Your maximalist extremism doesn't help uh, solve this uh, situation. Uh, we must come to a middle ground. Uh, the area between the Mediterranean and the River Jordan belongs to two nations. That is the Palestinian people and the Jewish people. And we must uh, know and learn how to coexist together. And there's plenty of room in between the river and the Mediterranean for both nations to have two states, Israel and Palestine, based on the 1967 borders and through negotiations and land swap. We need to put an end to this century-old killing. I I, I I think whatever the negotiated borders ultimately are, um, that, as you say, there there can be two uh, nations. And so now let's move to uh, one of the people who seems, in my opinion, to be undoing the potential for peace. And that would be uh, Netanyahu, who, from, yeah. from where I sit, um, is, is helping nobody. And uh, I say this with, with sadness because there have been chances and leaders, I would I would posit on both sides, have walked away from opportunities. Uh, the consensus seems to be in Israel that Netanyahu is not going to survive past this war politically. Um, and and I'm, I don't know if you agree with that, but imagine a post Netanyahu Israel. Uh, what would you like to see? Who, where, who, with whom could the Palestinians? Palestinians uh, work towards peace? Who would be a good partner for them? A good partner in Israel that is uh, someone that would recognize that uh, the Palestinian people are not extra. We are uh, people uh, that deserve to have a homeland, to have a a nation state, to govern our own self. Uh, A person that accepts uh, a vision of two states for two people through negotiations uh, now, Ganitz and Labid, uh, 
Uh, both are in support of that. Uh, the progressive in Israel are in support of that. The socialists are in support of that. And also, uh, you know, uh, some factions in, in the center in Israel are in support of that. Uh, we need to stop talking about division of two states and really go into implementing uh, a, a two states and separating the two people from each other. Uh, you know, we need international intervention in here uh, to go in between the two people. Uh, we need to have defined border to separate the two people. Uh, enough. Uh, military occupation uh, for almost now 55 years. It's been 75 years since the catastrophe of the Palestinian people in which my mother uh, became a refugee. My mother comes from Dabar Galil, which is now uh, in Israel, from the city of Sfat. Her family became refugees 75 years ago, and millions of Palestinians, around 6 million Palestinians, 7 million Palestinians, are still refugees since 1948. So my people deserve to have a place under the sun. So uh, we were not born to live under military occupation. Let, let me ask you this: um, in in light of your belief that there could be two separate states uh, negotiated by uh, both Palestinian uh, people and and Israeli leadership, and your view that there are partners for peace uh, on the opposite side, as horrible as it sounds, could the extreme disaster, horror, humanitarian cost of this uh, war, could it somehow shift people's mindsets in, in a way that you couldn't anticipate and, and lead to a peaceful outcome? Are you seeing any any kind of glimmer of hope that this is just so bad that it really makes people understand that they have to do it differently? I hope so. Really, I'm hopeful that out of this darkness, a light will come out. And there is the recognition in Israel that our people, those Palestinian people, uh, deserve to have uh, their freedom uh, and to govern their own uh, uh, self. Uh, for us, Israel, to be dealing with a Palestinian state than dealing with all different uh, factions and this chaos on the Palestinian side. Uh, you know, Israel should allow for the Palestinians to consolidate into a nation state. It would be easier for Israel to deal with the Palestinians than dealing with any of those factions with their agendas and their support from Iran, from Qatar, and from all these different countries. A, a state that would be liable. Action. That sounds like a good vision for, for a good place to, to begin. And, and just quickly, in, in the moment or two we have left, you, you mentioned in your op-ed and you mentioned in your own history um, that you think that the Palestinian Authority is, is the organization that could perhaps carry this forward. And yet there's a, a perception amongst uh, many Palestinians that that group is also very challenged, uh, that there's a lot of corruption. And that they and that to back it now would be all kinds of a disaster. What would you say to them? Uh, the Palestinian Authority is the right uh, representative, the legitimate representative of the Palestinian people because it comes out of the PLO, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, where you have 12 factions making that coalitions. The Palestinian Liberation Organization, the PLO, is the one who negotiated with ex Hakrabin and Shimon Peres back then in 1993 and came out with the Oslo Agreement, and they signed the Oslo Agreement in the uh, Red Roses in, in, in the White House. So 
the Palestinian Authority is the legitimate. Is, is there corruption in the Palestinian Authority? Yes. Do we need to fight the corruption in the Palestinian Authority and rebuild it and have uh, a rule of the law, Palestinian Authority? Yes, I would love to. Yes, of course. So you're seeing, as part of your vision, a rebuilt Palestinian Authority, um, and and you want to also see international um, patrols, as it were, to, to ensure whatever is negotiated. That Do I understand that correctly? Yeah, without having a rebuilt... Uh, Palestinian Authority, a Palestinian Authority that has monopoly on power, monopoly on uh, arms uh, and weapons uh, within its own jurisdiction without having a strong Palestinian Authority, then Hamas will be able, another radical group will be able to overthrow the Palestinian Authority again, like they did in the summer of 2007. I don't want to see that again. I want to see a strong Palestinian Authority. Palestinian Authority, that is the seed for the independent Palestinian state. Independent Palestinian state in peace with the state of Israel. That's what I want to see. Well, I really thank you for sharing your vision, and I particularly thank you for uh, pointing out that there is a sense of history that seems to be missing in some of the uh, horrifying rhetoric on both sides, and that with a good sense of history, which you have helped people get today if they didn't already have it, we have a better idea of how to be of assistance and how to be peace builders and how to proceed. So I thank you for your writing and your thoughts, and I wish you luck. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Stay safe as well. 434, Tory writer for Joan Esposito, WCPT, Chicago's Progressive Talk. This is Chicago's Progressive Talk, 820 AM, WCPT Willow Springs, and online at WCPT820.com, where facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Filling in today for Joan, radio personality and author, Turi Ryder. 438, if you're making your way home, Patty. Patty will be in at 5 to escort you the rest of the way. That's why we call it driving you home. Huh? Or perhaps you're transiting you home. She will be here just after 5 with two hours. It's a double Patty. We like that. Uh, if you are someone who likes really unusual and artistically innovative work, you would probably be interested in seeing the Book of Mountains and Seas. It is music. It has huge puppets from what has been described to me. And may I say, I love huge puppets. Uh, I think that if you've never seen uh, an oversized puppet performance I don't know if you can even call them oversized. Um, well, we'll get all the nomenclature down because to meet you now, uh, the librettist, and I'm, I'm going to do my best with the name, Hung Ru, I, I hope I have that right, and, and Basil Twist, the master puppeteer, and, and would you correct my pronunciation, please? <laughs> If I've messed hello. up your names, hello, hello, welcome to WCPT. Uh, yes, glad, thank glad. you to be with you. Uh, I'm actually a composer in Liberty, oh. and uh, my name is uh, Huang, Huang Ruo. Huang Ruo. Yes. Good. Right. All right. Composer and librettist, and is it basil or basil that you use? 
It's Basil. Basil, I had it right it the right. first time. Yeah. Oh, good. <laughs> good. I Hi, Wing Hi, Basil. <laughs> one out of two is my passing grade today. Tell me, it wouldn't work in school, but for this purpose, 50% will get you through. T- tell me about the show. Why don't we begin with its composer and librettist? Tell me about Book of Mountains and Seas. Yeah. It's based on the... Uh, uh, 2,500-year-old uh, ancient book from China with the same name. Uh, it's a, a mythology book uh, documenting all kinds of uh, uh, strange tales and uh, folklore. Uh, but it has uh, codes about the creation of the world, also about the destruction of the world. So it was embedded in this ancient book, so we could actually for see what's going on in the world right now, also the future. Um, so I used uh, four of the tales to create this uh, opera, uh, also is the vocal theater, uh, for 12 singers, two percussionists, and six puppeteers, uh, which is masterfully uh, created by uh, Basel uh, and his team. So who, first of all, where will it be performed and when for people who are going to hear more about it so they can scribble down, okay, where it's going to be? Anybody? Oh gosh, I, um, I can. I, I, it's part of the. Um, it, it's part of the Chicago Opera Theater uh, season. That's right. And also part of the International um, Puppet. Puppet Festival yes. that happens every year. And yeah. it'll be at the Studebaker uh, Theater. Um, it's Studebaker Theater on uh, on Michigan Avenue in the Fine Arts Building, and, and? I think it is the twenty. I'm looking at the dates because I'm. It's the twenty, the sixth, twenty fifth, twenty sixth, twenty seventh of of January twenty seventh. Yeah, that's right. And yeah. and twenty. Uh, uh, 20- Okay, I'll figure it out. Don't worry. I'll get it and I'll yeah, put it yeah. up. So don't worry. And here's what I know. I, I have oh, to miss sorry, sorry. it. It's 26, 27, 28. Yes. And I, Friday I, to Sunday. I could have helped you with this, except because what I know is that <laughs> I just thought it would be easier for you. What was I thinking? I, I, I know. We, we don't have that in our mind. Yes. And, uh, and you right have at this moment. a lot going on. And, but I will say that people should absolutely explore the Chicago Puppet org page yeah. because there are so many cool things going on. So talk about the music. Who will be performing? Are there traditional artists? Is it a contemporary uh, orchestration? Would you tell us a little about who's singing? Is there spoken word? What happens? Yeah, so basically uh, it's sung in uh, Chinese and also uh, celestial language, which I uh, created. Uh, wow. And uh, the, the, the choir is called Asnova Copenhagen from Denmark. Uh, they will travel and come to uh, Chicago from Europe uh, to sing for the, the audience, Chicago audience. Uh, they are an extraordinary exactly. amazing yeah. group. That's right. And That's are there right. super titles and, uh, for people who don't speak uh, um, the language? Are there super titles so they know, can follow the plot? Yes. And the, there are. Okay. Yes. yes. Both Chinese and uh, English. Oh, lovely. So we should encourage yeah. people who have uh, bilingual households to come and they will That's be right. able to participate or appreciate, I should say, in, in yeah. two languages. I love also That's, that it's at the right. Studebaker yeah. Theater, which has just been redone and I gather ah. is state of the 
the art. I have not been yet in its current iteration. But the if you have you both seen the fine arts building, it's a, it's a it's a relic I and have. it's a treasure. So okay, let's yeah, talk I, I have, to uh, both yeah. of you. Good. So Basil, tell me a little bit about the puppets. Well, so the puppets. It's. I mean, I'm. I'm the. I'm a puppeteer by training, but I'm the director and designer of the production. So I include puppetry in a large sense. I use materials and objects to tell the story, and some of them are what you would think are traditional puppets, and some of it is just like a big piece of silk or some paper lanterns, but they're all, those are manipulated by a group of skilled puppeteers from New York to kind of create the imagery that of these four stories that Wang Ro has selected from, from this book of mountains and seas. Um, and so we use, um, it's quite actually, uh, the idea is to make it be very elegant and and imaginative by using silk and paper lanterns and some pieces of driftwood. So there's something hard, something soft, and something light that mm-hmm. everything keeps being reassembled into different ways to create these stories. Now, I know that a lot of people, when they're like puppets, puppets are for kids, <laughs> but, but that's not true. Could you explain about puppets as a, as a transcendent form of art for all generations and and why you think that works so well um well puppetry is um you know it's it's an ancient form but it's also you know we're so into into interdisciplinary forms right now multimedia and different forms that overlap and puppetry is kind of the original multidisciplinary art so it's both visual and performative um, and um, and the Chicago International Puppet Festival is really shaping up to be the major festival and showcase for national and international puppetry in the United States right now so Chicago's really lucky to have this um, festival is really gaining its momentum um, and so there'll be a wide range of really um, sophisticated um, Interesting. There'll be. I think they'll also have a few things for kids, but most of the work is directed towards a contemporary and a sophisticated audience. Um, with you know, because Chicago's such a great theater town, so there's may, many institutions that are participating, and Chicago Opera Theater is one of them in in this puppet festival. And I don't know, just puppets. Puppets work that kind of visual language. I think works particularly well with opera because opera is not <laughs> is, is not realistic to begin with it's true. not um, Very you true. know people yes. subtly singing like that is not how real realism in life is so it takes but you mean people don't of, people don't just sing while they're dying they don't they don't no <laughs> sometimes they do i guess but you know not usually that, not, not usually no so and to create also these very epic stories that um, that are from the Book of Mountains and Seas, which are kind of creation myths, you, you really need a kind of fantastical medium, and puppetry allows that. Okay. And, uh, so I think it works well with, with, with 
I, I'm really pleased with my collaboration with my friend Wang Ro in creating this. Yeah. So, Wang Ro, I'm going to ask you if you can if you can both hang on a second. I'm going to ask you to cheat and give the plots of some of these stories because I love a story and I can't come to oh. performance because I'm going to be out of the country. And so, ah. yeah, I know I'm really I am so bummed. You have no <laughs> idea. But just hold on because if I can persuade yeah. you to just cheat a little bit and tell us a little bit of these four or even just one. I would be so grateful. Stand by for that. 773-763-WCPT. If you have a text you want to send me about puppetry, what it's meant to you, uh, opera, what it's meant to you, opera theater, I, I'm I'm here and I'll be reading them. 448, Tory writer for Joan Esposito on WCPT. You're listening to WCPT 820 because facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Filling in today for Joan, radio personality and author, Terry Ryder. Oh, sweet. Yes, that's me, radio personality and author. The book, if you want it, uh, you can find it at your independent bookstore or online. It's called She Said What? A Life on the Air. And yes, there's a podcast, too. Thank you for asking. We are talking with Basil Twist and Huang Ro. Um, he is the composer and librettist of Book of Mountains and Seas, which is part of the Chicago Opera Theater and Puppet Festival. Those are two separate events, but they overlap that are happening exactly when I can't go see them. So... Uh, I have asked the composer and librettist to cheat just a little and tell me one of the stories that will be uh, on stage uh, sung by this chorus from Denmark and illustrated by the puppets. Uh, yes. So there are four stories, and one of the story is called The Legend of the Ten Sons. Uh, so right now uh, we had one sun, you know, uh, in the sky, uh, but in the old days, uh, apparently there were 10 of them. Uh, they all rest in the place uh, where there's a giant tree. Uh, and then uh, uh, one son every day is going out on duty to provide light for our earth. And then night of them would uh, rest on the tree. Uh, so one day they decided to all come out together just for fun, you know, as the young people do. Uh, but of course it was fun for them then, but for the people and the plants and animals on the earth, it, it became a disaster. Because it's too hot. Mm-hmm. The thing about one, what one sun could do to us. So when 10 of them, so a lot of uh, uh, plants die, animals die, uh, uh, and people die. So uh, uh, and then there was a, a archery of a human hero who shoot down nine of them. And uh, when uh, uh, this person about to shoot down the last one, uh, the the mother of the ten sons plead for the life of the last one and promise if the life was spared. And she will make sure him uh, uh, work every day on time in the morning and rest at night to provide the light for us. So that's how we only had one son left. And uh, uh, faithfully, every day we had that son. 
That is a yeah. beautiful story. And I particularly it like is. it that the mother shows up and, and fixes things. Or right. Little too late right, for right, the other right. uh, the other sons. And I'm, I'm sure she wished that she'd gotten there faster. But... It's beautiful, very beautiful. And as you told it, I can imagine just a little bit of the drama of this with the materials that you described, Basil, to to put it together visually for people. Um, And and I would like to ask you, Basil, a little bit about your history as as a puppeteer. Um, Well, I have a... um I have a family history as a puppeteer, and I have some Chicago history, actually. My my grandfather, um, musician who lived in Chicago, his name was Griff Williams. He used to play a lot at the Empire Room at the Palmer House oh. back in the 40s. Um, and uh, the Griff Williams Orchestra. And um, he also, though, used puppets as part of his act. He had puppets of famous band leaders like... Harry James and Camp Calloway, and he would sometimes put them into his act. And when I was a little kid, I grew up in San Francisco, but I was I was born in Chicago. I grew up in San Francisco, and then um, I was given those uh, puppets by my grandmother, oh. and so it sort of sealed the deal. And I've been, you know, a puppeteer since I was a kid, and am thrilled that I get to keep doing it, that it's my job, and that I get to collaborate with, I work a lot with music, and, um, but this is really the first time I worked with, <laughs> of, of, you know, creating a new piece with a living composer, um, so it was, you know, and you can just hear from, like, the story, like, how would you do that? How would you stage 10 suns, 10 celestial orbs? you know, uh, heating up the earth. How how do you put that on stage? Well, the answer is puppetry. And I'm, um, you know, I've been, I don't know, doing this. I work in opera. I work in cabaret. I work with um, Joffrey Ballet's Nutcracker. I did some of the puppetry in that. And um, anyway, I just... Well, now you're on our radar screen. And I'm I'm glad that you're here. Hung Rao, would you talk a little bit about how you chose uh, the pieces that you, how you chose the the myths that you chose, and how you came to put it together uh, as as a singing and orchestral piece for people? Yeah, sure. Um, So basically, I, you know, there are many stories. Uh, Some are, you know, very brave. And in, in fact, all these four stories, just one paragraph, a few sentences. Um, and uh, they also not in one place. So I have to go into the book and locate bits of pieces about oh. the same character, same story. Huh. And then I combine them, put them together. Yeah, it's very, this, the book was not written by one person, you see. So it was throughout generations and, and centuries, different people added more material to it. Uh, so So after my research, I feel... Uh, you know, it, it, it will be very interesting to form an arc of, uh, so the first story is about the creation of the world according to the Chinese. Uh, and the last story is about the destruction of the world uh, when mankind vanished and when the nature actually overgrown and become a real paradise without human. Um, so, but in between, I have uh, two other stories. One is about the spirit bird, uh, about a revenge taken by a, 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 a female bird who was strung by the dragon king, and she carried bits of rocks and branches every day faithfully 
to fill in the ocean, vast ocean, in order to uh, revenge for her death. Huh. So to me, it's a message of some something or someone doing something seems impossible, but the person or the, the being keep doing it. And uh, uh, although it's impossible, but the consistency of uh, continuing doing the same thing, uh, it will make a difference. Even it might not achieve the final uh, uh, result. Uh, so this also gives us a hope of situation that some, sometimes we, we might make progress even in a very daunting situation. I think that's and that beautiful. The best, best I, I, that is yeah, just exactly what we story. need right now. So, absolutely, and, absolutely. And of we, course, both of yeah. you have had to have had to practice diligently your respective um, practices, your artistic practices, in order to give yeah. this gift to us. So, I thank you both, and I encourage yeah. everyone to check out the website for uh, ChicagoPuppetFest.org. Org, and that will get you to the event. And likewise, the Chicago Opera Theater. Thank you both for being on WCPT today. Thank, thank I you. Really appreciate we hope it. To see your audience with us. Next yeah. year, I'm going. I'm changing my vacation. <laughs> thank you so much. Okay. Thank you both. <laughs> thank it's you. Four fifty-eight. Just about time for Patty Vasquez. I'll be here tomorrow. Thank you so much for being here with me today. 